Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You know what I want? <laughs> Not Samsung, Greg. Not Samsung. Not what? Not Samsung. Okay, welcome to another episode of the Raptors Weekly Podcast. This one kind of a special one. As somebody who is newer to covering the Raptors, my favorite podcast, even when I was getting into covering the Raptors and before I was doing it, was Blake Murphy and Eric Kareen's Raptors Reasonableness. I listened to every episode that I could. It was my favorite. And so I'm joined by both these guys to talk about the Raptors offseason, what's to come, Eric Kareen of The Athletic, Blake Murphy of Sportsnet, where he does everything. He's like Homer Simpson if he were good at jobs, something like that. I'll start with Eric. How the hell are you? How's the summer? Uh, okay. Uh, it's It's been since 2013 that the Raptors departed the NBA season in mid-April and didn't have to re-enter it until mid-October. So getting used to the, you know, full length of a proper missed the playoffs uh, off season. Uh, th- so that's been new uh, and that's nice and not nice in the way that people can probably understand. Uh, but I'm okay. Any interesting <laughs> self-actualization or realizations that have come? Oh, God. With, uh... Uh, next. next. <laughs> Blake, you, how, how's it going? Uh, I'm good. <clears throat> I uh, I now exist in a world with no off season because when the Raptors end, I become a Leafs guy, and then when they end, I become a Jays guy, and then uh, who knows? We're we're heading into a week probably, maybe not. Maybe they're gonna thread the needle differently, but like Jays chaos plus new Leafs GM plus Raptors new head coach all at once could uh, could yeah. be interesting. But Eric, that's my biggest thought about your off season. They're doing what. They did in 2018, where we ostensibly have an off season um, and like summer leagues there, but it's not if that year. It was not an international basketball summer or anything like that. And they just don't let you get on with it because you don't know what's happening with the coach. And you certainly I don't know if you had plans to go away or even a cottage or anything like that, but you cannot do it until they get a coach. We've been through this before. Yeah. Yeah, all all plans are post uh, if they exist. They only exist in in theory. Certainly not in itinerary. Um, in in emailed content uh, are post summer league. So it's not the end of the world for me. Uh, my feeling is it's going to kind of come. Uh, there will probably be a higher. I, I don't know when this comes out. My guess would be next week at some point. Um, this tomorrow yeah so the turnaround I, I, is rapid yeah um that that would be my prediction so i think we'll get a a little bit of a gap between brad tree living and raptors head coach x um but uh but yeah it is you know the the wide raging uh search are some of the you know the worst 
I guess it's only two words, but you don't want to hear them if you're a, if you're a sports reporter uh, cover or a beat reporter covering a team doing set search. Eric, That's, are you doing summer league? Uh, I will be going to summer league probably for five days or so. Sweet. Uh, I, I mean, depending on your view of summer league, I, I think that is a good amount of time to be at summer league. Yeah, I like to be there the whole like fifteen days yeah. and be uh, yeah. a, a certified sick of a human yes. at the at the <laughs> end. Yeah, I need to be going out into like the suburbs of Henderson, Nevada, to high schools to talk yes. to some guy who's going to maybe make the 905 as the 11th man. That's what I'm about at summer. Yeah. League. Yeah. Do you want to tell the story of your last athletic piece? Uh, what was it, my last it was about, piece? I think it was about the, uh, it was about like a big dude who was on the summer league team and had like, I don't even oh, know. If he got uh, a was it the Anas Mahmoud piece? Yes. Yeah. The guy who was trying to be like the first, uh, first uh, Egyptian Yes. NHL, NBA yeah. player. So that I just checked. My last piece was actually the big Ish Wainwright feature that I did. Okay. Which, uh, Apologies. Worked out well for the Phoenix Suns. I hope the Suns <laughs> fans got a lot out of that piece. But yeah, uh, Anas Mahmoud trying to be the first Egyptian player uh, to make the NBA was fun too. To uh, to walk us back a little bit, we mentioned the coaching search. And no, no, you said you wanted a Raptors Reasonless <laughs> podcast. This is just going to be us talking about nonsense and Eric's travel blights. Well, that's stuff. that's why I tried to introduce a bit of existential dread at the beginning, but we moved past it. So not quickly. biting, not biting. Yeah, this, that has been my personal growth in the last two years is just, oh, nobody wants to hear about this. Oh, interesting. Yes. Uh, impressive growth. Great. Um, coaching stuff, though. The Raptors have... Maybe growth in some areas, maybe regression in others as far as coaching goes. I think all three of us here are pretty standard on the coaching is tough to gauge. It's not really a hot take like this coach over this coach. You can't you have to get a track record and a team has to respond. But that being said, knowing about the, I don't know, pool of coaches that are out there, the Kenny Atkinsons that have been mentioned, Sergio Scariolo, Jordy Fernandez, Adelman, all these types of guys. Do you guys lean any one way, given what you know, if you know anything, uh, towards one guy where you're like, hey, maybe that's a good look? Um, the floor is open. Take it however you'd like. Yeah, I I think the biggest thing is it's almost tactic from a tactical perspective, which I would argue probably isn't the most important perspective, especially for a team that is not in championship contention mode. Uh, it's almost impossible to know tactically what a coach believes in uh, if he hasn't been an NBA head coach or, or even a college head coach. Um, and most coaches, when they speak, uh, assistant coaches will say, you know, I sort of believe in these things, but I'm flexible and I'm going to you know, base it on my roster. Like that, that's, that's generally what you want from a coach. You want them to have sort of vague principles, some unwritten, uh, sort of some, some things that cannot be broken, but you want them to be capable of going with the way that helps you win the most. Uh, and most of these candidates are assistants or, you know, long or maybe they had a G league coaching experience and it's just hard to know. So I, I think where I lean is I want them kind of to go young. I, I, I think that's probably 
the best way for the organization, not necessarily like a player who's two years removed from his career. And that's not a shot at JJ Redick at all. Like, like if they, he ends up being the guy, then again, we'll see. I don't know. I've heard him talk on podcasts a lot, but um, I, I just think a growing partnership with the front office and a roster that's more likely to me to get younger versus older, like probably makes the most sense. But as terms of me, in terms of me, like saying, "Oh, Jordy Fernandez, he's going to bring this awesome set that he learned from uh, Mike Malone, or you know, David Adelman is the next Rick Adelman, or Chris Quinn is the next Eric Spolstra." Like, I can't do that. Like, I it would be totally phony on my part. Yeah, yeah. And this is the the hardest part of all this is we have no idea what an assistant coach is going to be like in the head coach chair. Nick Nurse did not end up being. I mean, he ended up being as good a coach as I think some of us, and Eric, you and I talked to him a bunch over the years as an assistant, thought the pieces were there to be a good NBA head coach, but like how he became, like the style in which he became a good NBA head coach was not what the book would have suggested or what you knew about the assistant coach. Um, You can go back to Spolstra, who's the greatest coach of this generation, and like he was a complete unknown. Did anyone know what Eric Spolstra was going to be like, like tactically as a coach? Uh, coming from the video room and like dumped into, hey, here's the LeBron big three uh, era. No, we don't we don't really know. And some guys who were really well thought of assistant coaches, like I think everyone in in smart NBA circles thought James Borrego was going to be like a lock for uh, being a good coach. And he still might be. He it was not a, a great situation for him. Um, but like that didn't go as smoothly as you might have shot. We, we just don't know. Um, having said that, I think you can try to peel at some of the cultural elements and stuff. And this is where, you know, Chris Quinn's a name I've mentioned a lot. I don't know him personally. And I think probably I'm over indexing to the fact that Kyle Lowry seems to really respect him. And because Kyle Lowry respects nobody, um, the fact that like he seems to be Lowry's guy on the bench a lot with Miami. Um, I think probably I'm overemphasizing that in my head, but he I also- can only assume that means Kyle, uh, Chris Quinn never smiles. Yeah, uh, if, Kyle, if Kyle Lowry likes him. That was yeah. my question. Would it be that like that introduces <laughs> more of that like hard assness that maybe the Raptors organization is trying to take a step back from like, hey, maybe, you know, like it's not going to be like that. If it's I don't know. Kyle- I don't know that they're trying to take a step back from hard assness in general. It just might be a different brand of hard assery um, that they want, because I think like, I don't know, toughness or, or whatever, like. Like, for example, I know something that they value in pre-draft interviews and stuff like that, and this goes back to the Norman Powell draft, is like, okay, how would a guy respond to not playing? And would he use that as a chip on his shoulder, or would he wilt from that and withdraw? And, like, that's not physical toughness, but that's a type of toughness and hard at. And, like, Norm is Mr. UTG, understand that that just motivates my grind. That just motivates my grind. Like, I do think that's a part of culture that they're they're trying to get back to uh, as well, on top of just, like, you know, being a better vibes team and not being so depressing to watch. Um, So I do think of someone like Chris Quinn coming from the Miami environment where, and this isn't so much about heat culture in any kind of like Jimmy Butler way, as much as it is like they have multiple fringy guys who came up through the G league and had to have patience um, finding a role and figuring out who they were and living with those lumps for those guys to, to find their footing. And I think the same thing of, of Jordy Fernandez coming from Sacramento and he'd been in um, 
Denver Fun prior time. to that. And then Jordy Fernandez, I actually, I can think back to talking to him in back in the 2015, 2016 season when he was coaching the Canton charge. And like, I'm not going to be like, yo, what he got out of John Holland and a, a <laughs> terrible sophomore, Joe Harris is something that can apply to Christian Coloco and um, Joe Wieskamp. Like, I don't know that, but I do have a, a naturally given, you know, what I've liked to cover and, and what I've, where I've seen the success in the Raptors organization culturally, I, I do put a premium on, on guys who have been through that and find ways to get the best out of guys and the best set of situations. So Quinn and Fernandez are the guys to me who, from what we know about them, scratch the most itches in terms of culture stuff and getting back to, you know, a grindy player development. Yes, we're about winning, but we're also about patience because, hundredth percentile outcomes are way more important to a franchise's big picture than 50th percentile outcomes when it comes to player stuff. Um, those guys kind of tick the most boxes to me based on what we know, but also like Eric's point is very, very true that that might be the case. And then Jordy Fernandez gets the head coaching job and it's like, well, he just had a good roster in Canton. And uh, you know, there were fun videos of him as the Kings summer league 2022 coach. And that's uh, that's all it is. By the way, Shams just tweeted that the Pistons are heavily after Monty Williams. So if we were going a Monty Williams direction that uh, that may be out of the mix here. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to cut us off there because I feel like the listener probably already got some nuggets that they didn't have previous and we're not doing a very long podcast. So we're on to the roster building aspect of it. Trading thing. Just uh, we're going to visit the trade that you did over at The Athletic. Um, Eric. So this is the overall thing is that. So basically. The Blazers get Pascal Siakam and 13. The Raptors get Nasir Little. The third pick, which maybe that's Scoot, maybe that's Brandon Miller, Amen Thompson, who knows. Portland's protected 2026 first, Luke Kennard and Tyus Jones, and those Grizzlies get Anthony Simons. So that's the cannon fodder for the listener. That's out there. But the thing I want to talk about is trading OG or Siakam for number three, number four, number five. Why do we do it? What is the motivator? And Eric, I'll let you kick us off there. I mean, it's to perhaps broaden the skill sets on this team. Uh, that would be more applicable for trading either of Ananobi and Siakam. Although I think Ananobi and Siakam are, are obviously very different players. Uh, and then Siakam and Barnes probably share overall the most overlap in terms of in terms of skill. And then there's the, not only the fit question, although there is, but there's also the age question. And I just think it's unlikely, even if Scotty Barnes gets to his 95th percentile outcome, that he's both going to fit in a way that maximizes Pascal Siakam's peak and sort of and they're going to overlap enough for that to become like a real like like let's even say the the best pre Kawhi Raptors teams you know and those were good teams 59 win team you know second seed another year uh and the eastern conference has changed a lot like you can't you know maybe qualitatively they're as good but there, there's just no roadmap to that talent level winning 59 games again but i just 
don't see the path there with Pascal and Scotty more than anybody. Like if, if it were up to me, I'd like, OG, please take this extension, please. Um, I don't like, I don't think it's in his best interest to do so, um, but they should hope. And as far as anybody could ever say, no, you should not take 117 million guaranteed dollars. Uh, I'm aware of what that sounds well, like, but I, also, I'm guessing he could make more on the open market. It's also uh, a tough one because you have to operate these trades and free agency and stuff well before OG can yeah. actually sign the extension. He can't sign it to October 1st. You can handshake agreement or whatever, yeah. but like you, you have to navigate these draft trades without being able to actually lock them into the extension. So that's an extra layer of, of for sure. But I'd almost rather if it doesn't work out, then have to trade OG and accumulate more assets in yeah. October, but, but whatever. No, I'm, uh, I'm with yeah, you. Yeah, you yeah. know how I feel about OG. I, yeah. I um, yeah. So it's not like a shot at Pascal or a shot at Scotty. And as much as like, I just don't think like, not as much from a fit perspective, although there certainly is some fit stuff, but from like a time overlap stuff, I just don't think it's the best use of either's peak value to have them continue to play together. I, I yeah. so that's my that's my case. Like, pick a timeline and 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 sort of diversify your your skill set a bit more. This is something that Blake and I went on a nice little walk yesterday, and we were talking about this. I oh. think it's that. Jakob Pertl, despite being Pascal's guy, his presence is what brings about, like, as far as fit, an immediate end to, or makes it seem like there's an immediate end to the Scotty plus Pascal thing. Because if you're getting a surplus of shooting at the yeah. five, then you can earnestly hope for Pascal to get north of 36, 37%. And around there, especially as a catch and shoot guy, maybe above 35% above the break. And Scotty can come along slowly. But once you hammer down that, okay, we have a center who's fully developed, who definitely isn't getting a jump shot, suddenly running at the three, the four, and the five, Scotty, Pascal, and Pirtle, it becomes completely untenable. And even though that is Pirtle is look good. at the net rating. Yes. Look at the net rating of the starting lineup. We, we will get to that. Yeah. Um, but first I'll say just as my piece before I swing it to Blake. I Everyone here has written glowing things, analysis, stories about Pascal Siakam. He's fantastic. He's an all-NBA player. If Scoot Henderson falls to three, I think Scoot is so good that you just make sure that he's on the Toronto Raptors if you can. That's my position. Uh, Blake? Scoot is also, I mean, we have to be careful with roster fit and stuff like this, because I do think if you if you start accepting that you're taking a longer term timeline, uh, more around when Scotty's peak is going to be, the actual short term fit doesn't matter as much because you're back in talent acquisition mode, right? It's just like get as many good players and develop them and then see what's what and adjust on the fl adjust once you're more ready to compete. However, I do think Scoot is among the better compliments to Scotty that you could have skill set wise. The other element of this for me, and I'm with you, Samson, that like we've all written the stuff about Pascal. I, I, I have loved covering Pascal. An extension of that, as cool as it would be for him to be a lifetime Raptor is as a basketball fan, I would, it would be very cool to see him in another situation that is higher leverage contextually and maybe in some serious playoff basketball playing an, alongside another star and, and stuff like that. Like, the Portland example is always is obviously the one that's going to come up the most. So him with Dame, what what does that kind of thing look like? Um, you know, I I still they're not going to do this, but 
the Thunder deciding, ah, we're close enough and Shea's an MVP candidate and we have 50 bajillion draft picks. Let's get someone else and, and what that would look like. That excites me. So I think that's part of it for me too is that Siakam in a new like win now environment could be a lot of basketball fun. But mostly to go back to Eric's earlier point is like, it's time to to pick a direction. And it was okay. Certainly the run it back year, you can justify running that back, even if it meant you got less for, I mean, you got nothing for Abaka and Gasol when they eventually left. You got Lowry, you got less for Lowry than you probably would have gotten um, otherwise, like you can absolutely justify that given the afterglow and given how good that team ended up being. The Tampa tank, whatever. I mean, I don't know how we're ever going to contextualize that historically, but like we're now four years into, well, the championship pieces are still here and, you know, we got Scotty Barnes so we can kind of twin track, right? The Kendall Roy twin track. I'm alive, but I'm dead. I'm alive, but I'm dead. I'm, I'm, I'm tanking, but I'm win now. Um, that you can't do that anymore. I, I think there has to be a more fun. Even the Golden State Warriors couldn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, although they did get one one extra ring on the back end. Sure. So, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's another potential Siakam fit, right? Is mm-hmm. like I, you got to take back some uncomfortable money on good players, but you could also get a, a Jonathan Kaminga, who Samson, I know you you really like and believe in. Um, and like bad money for player for good players is still preferable to bad money for bad players or no money for no players. Um, so there are some, there are a lot of options there. Anyway, I, I'm, I, I need to see them pick a, a, a direction here and, and have a more. And I think that this really applies to the coaching search too, because like, you know, if you were going to put all your chips in win now and, and trade, I know they can't technically trade this pick, but you, you draft him and then trade him or something like that. And you're trying to add pieces to this, like you did with the Jakob Bertle trade. And then that to me is like, that's a different coaching hire then if you're going down the Scotty path and you're being more culture oriented and you're taking a longer view, um, I just think it's time for that as hard as it is. And it's, it's extra hard because they did the Jakob Pertle trade, which I didn't really like at the time. Obviously those lineups were good together, but results wise in terms of playoff appearance and things like that, it didn't do what they wanted to do. Um, but you can't chase bad money with good. You you can't be like, well, we traded for Pertle. And we have three win now pieces, so we got to keep chasing. I, I think it's yeah. you got to pick a direction at this stage uh, for a lot of different reasons, and that means having some uncomfortable conversations about what you could get for one of the best Raptors ever. And that's a point I've tried to make: is like, yeah, the twenty the twenty twenty four pick might be out, but at this point, you shouldn't care whether the Spurs get the eighth pick or the seventeenth pick. Like that's yeah. not a reason to make. I mean, it's a reason you might make your mid-level signing this year or or whatever and make like minor moves, but you're not staying good or, or staying at this current competitive level of talent, let's say, in order to make the Jakob Pertle trade look good. Or, and or to, look, yeah, go ahead. And to be clear, I, I'm not saying necessarily yeah. that in picking a direction, you have to bottom out and tank yeah. but if you're going to be a 500 ish team i would rather do that with more young pieces uh, a fresh voice at the coaching thing giving more leash and opportunity to developing guys to see what's they're trying new things stylistically like like this team was a 500 team and out in the playing game it's yeah. not like it's uh, anyway you you're it's not worth being precious about at this yeah. point no pun intended yeah 
So a couple of things, sunk cost fallacy. Yes. Yeah. And additionally, what you mentioned, Blake, is that the championship is no longer organizational. It is personal to the people who witnessed it as fans. Um, the players can't ride off of it. There's no coattails anymore. That's kind There's of no coaches left from it either, by the way, <laughs> unless they bring Scariolo back. Everyone's gone. Jim fan, baby. Yeah. yeah. So, right. Something we kind of kicked around the periphery. We'll get right in on it now. The Raptors, the starting lineup was really good. It won a ton of minutes. I think the joke I made was that the Raptors are in Canada and expensive for seemingly no reason, like Roots clothing, something like that, right? And this is what I want to talk about. If you have a starting lineup that wins a ton of minutes, you have a player that, if healthy, I think consensus, everybody's like, that's a really good bench player in Otto Porter Jr. A lot of people like Precious, myself included. I don't know what happens with Gary. We'll get into that hopefully a bit before we get out of here. But this team has a lot of good players on it is not that good, has a couple lineups that do work really well. Why does the starting lineup not have – or why does the starting lineup having good numbers not necessarily guarantee good things going forward? Because this is a, in the marketplace of ideas. This is one of the things that people champion. Uh, Blake, we'll go to you first. Yeah, so I think part of it is – I mean the biggest part of it is that your starting lineup only plays a chunk of the game, right? And and it's not everything and and – the old Jack Armstrong of is it your like your best five players or your best five man lineup that you you want to start? And I think that the Raptors in setting up their starting lineup that way, while it was obviously, you know, uh, effective uh, for long stretches of play, you know, first of all, they almost never used it as a closing lineup, which tells you something. They only had four high leverage minutes. That's it. Like I, the start of each half is not high level. They almost never closed with that group. And that tells you something. Um, it also caps the minutes that they're operating. Like, yeah, starting each half really strong is important. Um, but the way they did that, and that some of this has to do with like the roster being as thin as it was. But very, very quickly when they went to the bench, they had almost no lineup combinations that made sense, right? And, and Gary coming off the bench was a, a necessary concession and it was the best of a of a weird situation with six starting caliber guys, but like those pieces only. only Can I interject really... with a quick question? Yeah, yeah. You said none of the lineup configurations make sense. Everybody knows, especially when you're on Twitter. There's a certain sect of fans, analysts that are like, just figure out the just like go to cleaningtheglassrnb.com, sort by you know the net rating. And then play those lineups. Yeah. Like, what? Why do you think that there's a disconnect? Well, I mean, part of it was they just didn't have enough depth. Like, like you could construct lineups that made sense, but they all had to involve at least two starters. Like, it was one of Pascal or Scotty and one of Fred or OG, and then you can throw three bench pieces at it. And and even if it ends up being Boucher Achua, which you know their chemistry went up and down as the season went. And like Gary's an interesting one where like. He kind of fits every lineup because of the shooting, but like the defense fell back so far this year that he wasn't really driving team level performance and stuff. So um, like, I understand those, those people and those numbers, but I don't think you have like lineups that you trust. If there are only like a couple of thin combinations that have small sample success. But I think a lot of this comes back to your earlier point, Samson about Pirtle's fit and the, 
the kind of exponential lack of spacing, right? Like there is, we talk about diminishing returns to some skills, but there's also the opposite of that where um, you can have exponentially bad returns to a lack of spacing. And the starting lineup survived because those are five very talented players and not every team in the league is, you know, starting their best five or playing their hardest all the time in February and March and April. Um, but really like that, I, I don't think that lineup would have been that effective with a huge sample or, or in a playoff series either. And then the trickle that I, I don't know. I just, I, I don't think that it was just, I just don't think it was that good as nice as it was defensively. Sure. But like even offensively, the way they came about it was even when they were effective, it was not comfortable given the team dynamic, like Pascal Siakam being minimized as a ball handler a little bit, or, or, you know, there were stretches where Scotty Barnes's work as a role man, which had been so encouraging, just went down the drain and stuff like that. It just, I was never super confident that those minutes were going to sustain at that level. Um, because like it only made sense defensively. Yeah. And, and Blake touched on this, but we never got to see like a good coach prepare for that lineup in the playoffs. And I think that's a big deal too. Like you're, by the nature of the regular season, you're focusing every game so much more on yourself than you are on the other team. And not that that completely shifts in the playoffs, but it really does. Uh, it shifts a bit. Um, it's just like shooting is just such an important skill in, in this league. And it didn't have enough of it. And that goes for the roster as a whole, too. Like, let's say an opposing coach plays the Raptors in the playoffs and they're like, OK, you're going to run a lot of Jakob stuff. That's cool. But we're going to defend it so that when he catches the ball on the short roll, like he has that floater available to him from the free throw line. And that's it. Otherwise, your offense is going to stall there. And like we're gonna we're gonna guard that smartly, and we're going to help dramatically off of Scotty Barnes in one corner and OG in another corner because Barnes isn't a shooter yet, and OG if he puts the ball on the floor against a wild closeout, that's a win for the defense. Like I don't know, I just, I think there's a lot of stuff you could have done to hurt that group spacing wise. I still think they would have been tremendous defensively, no matter what. That's just too many good individual defenders and too much length. But I, I don't think that that. I don't think it would have scaled. 14 of the Celtics' first 20 possessions in Game 7 went to either Al Horford getting a switch and then posting up and trying to do that or slipping to the rim and getting like that feed down low. And I think they scored like six points on all those possessions. And you'd run into similar things. Even they, you know, you, you bring up plays that you want to run to start games. The Raptors ran like horns flex and then they ran flex screens out of the elbow alignment. They scored a lot of points. Uh, after the trade deadline running that but that's a you know it's a scheduled play that other teams if they were in the playoffs they'd be like this is fairly easy to defend and that they got a lot of points doing that in the regular season um i guess we can move forward to order of preference in returns Jakob, fred gary uh and then if you have a, a guess to how much they're going to get aave um if they are returning um, feel free to put that in. Eric, we'll start with you. I would probably go in, in the order you said it. Um, and I'm not going to lie, like the trade for Yak does play yeah. into that a little. It's so <laughs> yeah. hard to separate. Like, like philosophically, I'm not sure 
even after I don't know, maybe I've maybe I'm overthinking this, but even after seeing the last two years of Raptors basketball, I'm not sure, especially if you're not going to be a championship contender, how much sense it makes to like really invest in that sort of non-shooting role, heavy cent- center, but top ten well, center yeah, per Masai. Yeah. Um, anyway, I, I but I, I think I'd ultimately go with him. Uh, Fred, and then like, you know, I'm almost resigned to the point, and this isn't reporting, but this is just like doing math. <laughs> like, it's very hard to see a way that Gary Trent Jr. is back. I, I, I think, um, and it was certainly, as Blake said, his defense took a big hit, uh, and even when his defense was better the previous year, it's still high risk, high reward type defense, and that worked with Nick Nurse. Uh, it will probably work less with the next coach. It would almost have to, based on Nurse profiling as, as one of the most aggressive defensive coaches. And and so that makes him even potentially less valuable to the Raptors. I'm not saying it's impossible because anytime you have bird rights and if Fred decides to go elsewhere or the fit doesn't make sense, uh, you know, you you keep a useful player and Gary is certainly that, but I'd say it's most likely he's gone and and certainly the Raptors, even though they need shooting, it, it probably makes the least sense for them to, to super invest in that. And, and quickly AAV, I'll guess, 20 for Pirtle, I'll guess 28 to 30 for Fred, uh, and maybe 17 to 20 for Gary. Uh, Gary, like Gary, I don't have a good feel for. Uh, it totally depends on what cap room teams want to do. Yep. So my only change to that really is I, I think you're a little high on, on Pirtle's annual value. Like I have been penciled in for um what is it 470 so 17 and a half that's not reporting on anything that's just like i know teams are going to be like hey we see you at like 15 million is a nice even mark it's more than the mid-level but it's not a a difficult number and then he's going to want 20 because that's a i mean we've heard that since like before the trade deadline that that's going to want and then like yeah then you split the difference um yeah fred as much as people as much as raptor fans are weird about fred like he's going to have that kind of market and the sign and trade market is limited a little bit with the, I mean, it was before, but especially with the new tax rules that are rolling in where um, teams will be even more restricted on that. But like teams like the Clippers and, and teams like that were already so restricted anyway. Um, so the only thing I'll say is that my order of my order is the same as Eric, but it changes if the Siakam trade were to happen then I think I bump Gary up a little higher in terms of priority just because he is a 24-year-old guy who offers shooting and is going to get a price tag that is always still movable. Like, he's not getting Jordan Poole money. So if you have Gary Trent and you sign him, even just to hate using a term like this, but, like, preserve the asset so that you have a guy who's playing and shooting and then you can always turn around and trade him later – I prefer that to, to letting him walk, especially in the scenario where you do explore a, a draft night trade that takes you a little long, younger and, and frees up some some financial flexibility below the tax. So when I was kind of doing the mediocre spot rack 
seeing everybody's market AAVE across the board and everything like that. I think I expected Pirtle to go north of 18 per okay. year. Um, Fred, if he gets 27 a year, he would be the 29th highest paid guard in the league and the 17th highest paid point guard. It seems like a lot of money, but the cap is going up and this is just like, and Fred is still a good guard as much as, you know, people's bandwidth has kind of, it's gone away a little bit for the low field goal percentage and his defense did slip. He's still a guy who shoots the three increasingly well after that, that big slump at the start of the year. He is a guy who won a championship. We see guys from other teams who just have like, conference finals and finals not even championship experience they last so much longer in the league because of that quote-unquote like pedigree fred is you know he won and he's yeah he's a valuable guard i don't know what it's going to end up being but 28 to 30 sounds realistic for that as well um yeah to, to give context like the way the cap has risen so dramatically over the last couple of seasons, like it's gone up by 34% since the 2017, 2018 season. So Fred getting 27 million, that's the number you use Samson. Yep. So that's only 20% of the cap. That's the equivalent of in 2017, 2018, him getting $20 million a year. Like we have to, we have to change. And and, uh, we've a couple of us on Raptors Twitter have talked about this in the past is like, the money the obviously the agents want the dollar amounts out there and the players get the real dollar amounts but for like actual like roster building analysis we should probably just be using percentage of the cap like it's a it's a much more helpful way to compare across even like two seasons ago that number is like 23 million for fred cuz the cap keeps going up like crazy yeah like in reality it's not this contract if it were that would be almost identical to the previous contract he signed it'd be very similar um i think well yeah i'll I'll say i agree with the the takes on gary trent jr as well i've talked about that lots on this podcast so we'll move past that do you guys like any prospects just as like a quick hitters no No? good no 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 prospects Uh, um the two that jump out to me and maybe that's from seeing so little decent guard play over the last few years <laughs> i like uh and i this isn't from like watching a ton of tape i, I still want to get into that but like kobe buffkin and uh Kaysen wallace are, are two that jump out to me for you know buffkin's maybe a bit more offensively gifted and wallace maybe gives you a bit more defensively but i think they're they both have the potential to grow into something more, but I think they could also give you something right away and quality minutes. Uh, always hard projecting with 19 and 20 year olds. And, and they're, I think both around, I have, I didn't look at the, I do not look at combine measurements unless it's wingspan when concerning the Raptors. Uh, so I had, I think I saw them both last measured at 195 pounds. So obviously physically at, at, any rookie guard, it's going to be a situation. But I, I think that both of those guys make some sense for the Raptors. That that's sort of where where my starting, my beginning level of of draft prep has me. Uh, for anybody who's new to this uh, podcast or this YouTube channel, you can just search it. Uh, we've done scouting reports on both Casey Wallace and Kobe Bufkin. If you want a deeper dive, Blake, any guys you like. Yeah, um, you know, and a lot of this is, again, due to shooting and the need for movement shooting and stuff. And there are some 
limitations, but not to the degree that I, I think it disrupts him from being a rotation player. But I think if the, especially if the Raptors were to say, we're going to keep this group together and we're going to try to be competitive, Grady Dick scratches or he, he ticks a lot of boxes for what the Raptors have lacked in prospects. And I, I don't like doing the draft a guy now for immediate fit because he's probably not going to be that guy for like three years. And, um, you know, your roster is going to change. For, like the old DeLon Wright thing of like, oh, they like him in part because he could be an immediate backup. And then you sign Corey Joseph like four days later. Um, things change really, really quickly in that regard. So, um, but I also think that Grady Dick's like, like the player he profiles as is, it's hard to see it going out of fashion in the NBA, a, a guy with some size and some movement shooting. Um, so he's a, he's another one. I think Jet Howard's interesting too, but I haven't dug in quite a, as deeply on him yet. And to see, you know, exactly how he might fit the, the Raptors developmental style. Also uh, for anybody listening, I think I'll be talking Jet Howard with Sam Bassini and have oh, done a scouting reports um, on Grady Dick as well, who the, Josh Conner, who I talked to, said he would expect down the line that Grady would be valued as a top five player in this draft. He really likes him. Grady's awesome. Uh, I asked for questions. Basically, all of them revolved around what we've already discussed, except for this one. Blake, do you regret abandoning the Raptors for the Blue Jays was a question. Any thoughts? Well, I think that that question gives me more agency than I've actually had in any of this. Uh, <laughs> it is, uh, I go where I'm told. I, yeah, I mean, look, I didn't come up as a basketball first person. I was like, I was a hockey player and I was an everything blogger and everything like that. But obviously most of my career has been on basketball and I certainly miss the like day to day and getting into kind of the nitty gritty stuff. And I miss writing a little bit. But also like talking about baseball on the radio on in the summertime is like a very cool, I don't know, weirdly feels nostalgic, even though I'm doing it for the first time in like 2022 and 2023. So uh, I did not have a say in it, but no, I don't really regret it for now. I, I, I don't a, think. I have a question. Is it harder or easier to be reasonable about the Jays <laughs> or baseball in general versus the Raptors and basketball in general, because like I, the Jays are like my one fandom outlet and I get so, so mad. And I don't, I don't know how much of that is like specifically because of that or because baseball is more infuriating. No, I, I think it has to do with what is your primary sport and what is your secondary sport? Yeah. Because like, like my favorite thing to joke about is like, we do Raptors reasonableists, you and I, Eric, yeah. and then Chris Black, my colleague at Sportsnet would, is like hitting us with yeah. unreasonable takes. And then on baseball, OG is he's bad, like, he's the reasonableist that I bring on every week on the show to like reasonably go through sample size things and is this actually concerned and then you're the unreasonableness there yeah. um, and then before like hockey became a part of my job that had kind of shifted into it for me whereas like I could just like be like dad on the couch with a bowl of chips just screaming shoot it on the power play <laughs> why don't they shoot it why don't shoot it um, so I think I think it has more to do with like what's your yeah. primary and what's your secondary than anything with the sports like obviously like baseball could cut both ways where because it's 162 I could see some people finding it easier to be reasonable without because it's like, oh, huge sample, take your time, patience. But also there are 162 possible times where you could just get unbelievably mad. So Yeah, that, that uh, my instinct was it was about what you follow more, but I just wanted to check 
what level of unhinged I am. Um, there's there's more stats to contextualize and like calm yourself down about baseball too. Like you, nobody. I wonder if it happens in basketball, but nobody's actually going to get into the arc and spin on each. Like there's second spectrum doesn't do that for the public. Like exit velocity and expected batting average on balls and plays. I want like that, that so badly for passing metrics to like be able yeah. to measure who passes into the shooting pocket most effectively and things like that. I'd lose all my value as the Caitlin Cooper and I are the only two people who watch every pass. And you know what, what happens to us then? Well, you just become a strictly popsicle podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, okay. That feels like a podcast. Like <laughs> Eric, any, uh, any parting shots before we get out of here? No, it's always, uh, always good to talk to you, Samson, and always a treat to, uh, to talk to my old pal Blake and I look forward to the August where he August date where he's desperate enough that he asks me to come yell about something on maybe uh, both of you (laughs) (laughs) Blue Jays talk on Jays talk plus so I'll end with this is you know the question about do I regret changing anything like that the only thing I regret about it is just how much I miss the fans here at Raptors Republic. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, Whether you got into this in the morning or at night, have a blessed day and goodbye.